Hello, folks. We are back, Catalyzing Coherence. Today, we're joined by Andrew Hessel, um, the CEO of Humane Genomics um, and a pioneer in the emerging space of synthetic biology. And I thought we'd start today with just going over, like, what is synthetic biology? Synthetic biology, for to me, uh, is genetic engineering done with digital tools. This is a major upgrade. It, it absolutely supercharges our capabilities and makes them at the same time a lot cheaper and a lot more accessible. Mm -hmm. At the at the core of the field, if you kind of want to you know see a device or or something that to really understand the field, it, it, there's a machine called a DNA synthesizer, which is like a 3D printer for the DNA molecule. And since DNA is ultimately the code that runs all living things, having a 3D printer for the DNA molecule and the design tools to be able to connect to that printer really opens up the, the ability, ability to, to program, program life. Mm -hmm. And there's so much life that already exists, but now it's these tools are empowering entrepreneurs, innovators, artists, really, to, to build new things that don't yet exist. And, and that just opens the floodgates for a whole new paradigm for life as we know it. Um, and, well, and, and, and I want to be clear, we've had genetic engineering since the early 1970s. Mm -hmm. uh, it's been, you know, kind of a, a technological uh, blossoming that started really with the deciphering of the DNA molecule and its, and its role, you know, the double helix, um, moving on to deciphering the, the standard genetic code. How does the, the string of, of nucleotides in DNA correspond to the proteins that build us and, and run our, our metabolism to you know, being able to manipulate that code? Um, again, we developed that capability in the early 1970s with recombinant DNA technologies or gene splicing. And, and we've pro, you know, progressively gotten better, but the, 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 so we've had genetic engineering um, of this type. What you can think of as synthetic biology for, you know, really, you know, for over 40 years. But the, the thing that's exciting is now we have these digital tools, you know, like the DNA printer that allows us to move much faster, make it cheaper, more accessible. You know, if you were doing genetic engineering in the 1970s, you were an academic. You were literally cracking open the field. In the 1980s, you might be working for a large biotech company or for a government lab because it took that type, that scale of resources to do that type of manipulation. And today, the exciting thing about synthetic biology is it's becoming as as relatively easy to do as programming computers. Yeah, and, and I, I'm, I'm using careful language there because it's not easy to program computers. You have to go and invest some time and energy and practice. But but now but it's accessible. Anyone that wants to program a computer can get access to a computer. Life is everywhere. These tools are becoming accessible. They're already inexpensive. And now if you want to take the time and energy to learn how to program life, it, it, you can do it. Yeah. So, so in terms of you made the, the direct comparison to computers or in terms of like building this stack on top of this fundamental information and in computers we had the electrical engineering and then we had the operating systems and then we had you know low level languages and high level languages and now we have the web on top of that and, and 
at each of those stages, more and more people get involved and, and more and more people create a, a broader diversity of, of products or experiences. Where are we in that stack right now with synthetic biology? That's great. Um, so, so instead of engineering as, a, as the foundation or even physics as the foundation for the engineering, in biology you have, you have biology and biophysics. So we, you know, for, for millennia, we've gone out and looked around the world and surveyed it and, 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 and tried to understand what plants and animals have value for, for humans. We, we used to live much closer to nature. Then we started learning how to farm. Then we started learning. Then we started to bring in biological science and we started to classify. Uh, and then we started to really get good at dissection, um, not just, you know, gross dissection like like we, we would have done 400 years ago as we were trying to figure out the human body, but now molecular dissection and cellular dissection. So this is, this is really kind of the foundation that we stand on. The beautiful thing is now that we're kind of tipping over into engineering, um, we have to start from scratch. It, we, you know, kind of hello world in biology, I like to say, is just making an organism glow. Um, that's kind of the, the first step. Um, but we're just getting started. We're still working at the level of, of writing the bits, like, like machine code uh, for the cell. And it's just in the last few years that we're starting to get software that's taking us beyond manipulating the bits to being able to write logical circuits and having a compiler go and create the bits. Um, uh, that's really new. So, but you can expect that as we move forward, eventually we might just get to a position where we draw the organism and everything else is done by the computer. That would be, <laughs> like, I'd love to see us get there, but we're, that's still in the realm of science fiction. Mm -hmm. I mean, I guess it seems, do we have a design language for that or the tools around that? I know you worked with Autodesk for a while um, and they, they create a lot of those types of tools that help people who have, I guess, visions bring those into reality or, or kind of connect the dots between those with the creative impulse and the underlying mechanisms that need to be built in the world to realize that. So do those tools, you were talking a little bit about the fact that they don't exist yet or are they being built or where are we with those types of design tools? So that's a great. So that's a great lead-in. Um, my last position was uh, was with Autodesk, which is a software company that makes design software. Um, um, they're one of the leaders in that space, and and people kind of look at me sideways. Why did you join a design software company? But Auto, Autodesk made AutoCAD, computer aided design, and and the way to look at that is the things that we go and build in the world are getting more and more complex. Today, it's not just building a house, it's building a skyscraper. It's not just building a, a rectangle. We want beautiful flowing things. And, and we simply don't have the human ability to design that types of complexity at a reasonable cost. If every floor in a building is different, you have to do complete calculations on that. And you, the, the physics get really, really challenging. And that's where computer-aided design makes complexity possible. Um, so that was fascinating. When you, but that's a building or a car or a, a product that might, a cell phone. These are, these are relatively simple things compared to a living cell, a biological organism. So in, in, I think my first intersection with them was in 2009. I met the CEO and CTO and I said, look, 
have you given any thought about designing living things? And they said, no. And they went off and internally they explored that for a couple of years. And in 2012, they said, yeah, this looks like an amazing design space. Let's, we'll create a bio nano group as a research group and let's explore it. Um, we did not successfully create a new language. We didn't successfully create the, the, the perfect tool for doing design of biology, but we got a pretty good start. We built, we built, we leveraged the skills in the company on visualization and built a, a pretty incredible molecular viewer. Um, very powerful that could handle literally uh, millions and millions of atoms. That was kind of neat. Um, then uh, probably their flagship product today is, is something called Genetic Constructor, which is looking, which for the first time really drops the genetic code below the surface. And now you can start focusing on building um, constructs uh, to do something useful, dragging components in without looking down at the DNA. Is it like they've kind of created an API, so to speak, or an API language on top? It's definitely got an API if you're, if you're to do that type of work. It links into a, all different databases. There's a scripting language if you don't want to do it visually, because not everyone does. You know, the hardcore programmers just want to write code. Um, but it's a pretty powerful system. And meanwhile, other groups are doing things like creating open languages. Um, Antha is one um, that, that I think is, has becoming pretty interesting and successful. Um, and then there's another group that I've been watching kind of evolve in academia and then move, move forward. Um, uh, and, and that's uh, um, called Asimov. Uh, the company is called Asimov. And they actually build a, a take essentially the language from electronic design automation, the language that you use to write electronic circuits and chips, and they've ported that over to be able to write biological circuits. Mm -hmm. and, and that's really neat because now an electrical engineer can sit down and basically build a biological circuit without knowing anything about the underlying biology. Because, because the software, which uses a familiar language, compiles the circuit and the code using, you know, all the biological backend is, is done, you know, for them. So it just like unlocks a whole talent pool that wasn't already able exactly. to interact with that. Yeah. You know, if there's one thing I've been just digging, it's, it's the, it's kind of the merging of ideas of electronics and biology and the, and, and of digital manufacturing and of digital programming, just the world of electronics in, and, and manufacturing and the world of biology, it's, they're both digital. And so as they start to come together and you start getting the cross-pollination and fertilization of ideas, it's just awesome. It's the most exciting thing. Like every, every, time, I send a, uh, uh, every time I send an email, there's a little, you know, it appends a little message from my neural interface. Because, you know, this is a neural interface. It's not a very convenient one yet. One day it'll fit inside my head. But, but, uh, but the bridging of electronics and, and people... You can think of it as, as saunters, you know, like, uh, uh, like that to me is just totally cool. That, that's where all the excitement is. Yeah. yeah, and you've also done some work with iGEM, which is sort of like a, this community of students that are hacking away at, at creating new things. Um, any, anything, have you, when is the iGEM? Is it, it's a yearly event, right? Yeah, it's usually around uh, end of October, beginning of November. Okay. Um, iGEM, I, I have nothing but praise for. It, it, is, it, is the, it stands for International Genetically Engineered Machines. It is basically a, a global student 
uh, mentorship and, and competition in synthetic biology. It's largely modeled after something called US First, which is a robotics competition that was created by uh, Dean Kamen and Woody Flowers. Uh, very similar ideas. You, you put in a little bit of competition, a lot of cooperation. You, you give prizes, there's judging, and, and, and you keep it all open so people you know, can stand on the shoulders of the people that came before them. Mm -hmm. and, and it has evolved really nicely since it was first launched um, I believe it was 2004, so we're, we're coming up 14 years. Um, it, it's grown pretty big. There's over 3,000 students that show up at the Heinz Convention Center in Boston. I think they're actually getting so big they may have to move out of that. Um, it, it, I think over 30 or 35,000 students have been through it now. So this is kind of a, a whole new generation of, of biological engineer and a, and a community that you know is actually I just find really delightful. Anyone that is fearful of genetic engineering, anyone that is, uh, you know, that I just tell them, look, you know, send your kids to iGem. You'll get a whole new perspective. And and if you don't have kids, um, or you want to get a preview of what your kids could be doing, go to iGem mm -hmm. because the energy is infectious. Mm -hmm. it, it's it's. Uh, you know, you don't see that type of energy at monster truck rallies, you know? <laughs> yeah. So I guess that speaks to this very different perception or relationship that the younger generation has to the idea of potentially taking uh, synthetic biology to this new level of, of interactivity or of design and engineering. And community. And community, yeah. yeah. And then, and that's very different, I guess, in your perception from some of the, um, I guess, more established uh, perspectives from you know, that, that might be brought to the table by adults who are more you fearful know, or scared or concerned. At, at scientists in a stereotypical way, lab coat and pipette and safety glasses and all that. No way. Like the new generation of scientists are young, they're tattooed, they sit in front of computers most of the time. They're they're programming robots in the lab. You know, they they're you know they are so much more interesting and social and dynamic. And they can do things that their professors could only dream about at, at their age. Like when I was when I was going through my my cell biology training, if you could sequence a few hundred base pairs of DNA and write anything about it, you, you got a PhD. Today, just sitting here in, in my backyard in Russian River, I could run a genome project. I already run a synthetic biology company and, and we're, we're just getting started. Yeah. You know, the, one, of the, one of the things that really inspired me was for, I was, I was super fortunate. Like, I was a grad student one day, and the next day I was reporting to a vice president of a global pharma company and, and helping this research center that, that he ran, um, you know, stay at the very forefront of the field. And, and so I it was kind of a dream job, and, and, but I didn't ask for it. I just fell into it, and I ran with it. And it was the perfect time because genomics was exploding in terms of reading DNA. Uh, that was pretty cool. And, and suddenly being plugged into a pharma company, which, you know, these companies print money. Like, I want to be clear, most scientists have to write grants. You know, these companies printed money. You know, it, it, it was just, it, it was remarkable. But watching, watching the capabilities blossom mm -hmm. was nuts because these, these, what you, you know, what I saw was the technology that made these companies possible was accelerating so quickly that, that 
basically they would open up to everyone. Today, anyone can sit down and do exactly what a major pharma company did 20 years ago. And they can do it f for pennies, pennies on the dollar. And, and the reach that, you, that an individual can have into the world today has never been greater. So like, this is truly a golden age of biology, of genomics, of understanding human condition at a very, very low level, of understanding nature, of, and of, of really tapping into probably the most sophisticated manufacturing capability uh, you know, we've, ever, we've ever dreamed of, which is self-assembly from molecular, you know, from elemental materials. Yeah, self-assembly is a beautiful aspect. All of life is self-assembled. It's uh, auto-poetic. And when we think about this emerging space, is what, what do you see in terms of the self-assembly of the synthetic biology space and the communities around it and the, the discourse? Is there, is there a sense of collaboration that's taking place? Yeah, well, there's, there's a collaboration on variety fronts. So like academia in general. It's fairly collaborative. The, the waters have gotten a little muddy now that it's become a little more entrepreneurial, but for the most part, academia is open. Okay, there's some gateways, you know, with, with the journals, etc. But but for the most part, they're becoming more, uh, they're, they're pretty transparent. Another community that has emerged in synthetic biology, standing on the shoulders of, of you know, academic biology and all of the related fields is, is iGen. That's community, again, is, is, is much more specific around designing and building living things, but it taps into not only is it a community that reaches quite deeply, but they're also very socially aware because iGEM made a point of saying, hey, it's not enough just to go build this stuff. You have to think about its implications. You have to, you have to do some outreach into the community. You have to, you, 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 there's, they call it human practices, you know, and it, it makes a lot of sense. So the, it exposes people to, you know, being, taking responsibility for what you're creating. Because when you're designing living things, you're kind of the dad. You know, and mom, right? You're the parents, right? So, so, so it's not enough just to put an organism out in the world and just say, well, I'll be as you will, you know, like you have to take some responsibility right. for that. So that's kind of neat. And then, and then now we're starting to see the emergence of, of an even broader community where it's a network, mostly connected digitally, it goes beyond iGEM. Now it's this, now it's this you know, industry players, it's government players, it's students, it's, it's all levels. You don't necessarily, it's older people that are looking for new careers. It's just, it's, you can be members of the public that are interested, that are starting to, you know, support a project through, you know, through GoFundMe or Kickstarter or Experiment. It's just this network and, and there's a lot of buzz around it. And it's just getting started because if you look at the world of computing, you know, so much is connected you know, in these digital networks. Biology is all connected on the digital, on a genetic level. Now we're learning how to connect more and more of that biology through the digital technologies. And connecting those brains together and getting them to work together in interesting ways, really powerful. Yeah, yeah. Along the lines of that collaboration and synthetic biology, is synthetic biology, it's, it's such a fundamental and deep technology. I mean, it's, it's, it's operating at this level that is 
deep within every living creature. And I kind of get this image of I, the story of like the princess and the pea, right? Where you have like this little change or this little thing underneath all these mattresses, right? But then that little object can still ripple upwards across all these layers. And you're getting a mosquito, uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> a great example of something small changing yeah. much bigger systems, yeah. <laughs> and then it'll ripple outwards through the screen into the internet for all of time. Um, yeah, I was curious in terms of like the, the ethics around this in terms of these communities coming together and, and trying to understand when we make these changes at these deep levels, how that ripples out through all of the other systems in our, in our world, ethical, political, social, and how we're going about doing that. What are you seeing there? You know, uh, I, I think that type of rippling effect is really hard to model. Mm -hmm. um, uh, I, I think we're probably getting a little better at understanding it because there's some people that have some pretty big economic drivers to understand those ripples. Yeah. Um, I don't know if you've ever intersected with some of the algorithmic hedge funds, mm -hmm. but, but that's the type of computing they do. They build certain models. What happens if there's an earthquake in Chile? Right. How will that ripple out and, and kind of in, uh, you know, change the financial world? And, and again, they're kind of incentivized to understand that because they can, they can use it to their advantage. Um, I think, I think when it comes to the complexity of biological life, it's pretty humbling because we don't understand the ripples of changing that can be caused in a single cell by changing a single gene. We don't understand the, uh, even, even at a finer graduate, we don't understand the changes that can happen if we change a single amino acid in a protein. We're getting there, we're getting better at that. And, and, but we're, it's certainly not there. We just don't understand the biophysical space um, in in with a with a in a way that allows us to do predictive modeling. So sometimes the only way to find out how something is going to work is to go and build it. And if we're going to go build it, hopefully we start off building something with good intentions. I I, I made a comment yesterday to someone who wrote me um, who was saying that they were very interested right now in the dual use capabilities of CRISPR. Yeah, and dual use just means, okay, well, you can use it for good, curing someone, well, but you can use it for bad, you can make it a bioweapon. And, and I, you know, I wrote back and said, well, I, I fundamentally disagree with the, with the terminology of dual use because it's meaningless. Because tell me a technology that isn't dual right, use. Sure. And, and if, that's, if I can't use it as a classifier, then, then essentially it just isn't valid. And, and at the end of the day, to me, dual use comes down to human intentions. There's good intentions and bad intentions. There's accidents, which is just non-intentional too, so it's kind of quantum. But, but, the, but you know, if you go out and do something bad, it doesn't matter what technology you use, synthetic biology or a fork or you know, often a knife, it's, it's a lot more effective. But the, uh, you know, but good intentions, well, even if something goes wrong, your intentions were good. Uh, you know, uh, you know I, probably the worst case scenario is when you just don't have any intention at all. <laughs> or so paralyzed by concern of negative consequences that you don't do Or, or you don't do anything. Yeah. You know, and, and this is kind of the classic, you know, thing with, um, you know, the classic story around uh, the approved, the FDA approval of drugs. And this is why the FDA is such a hard job. I know this is a tangent, but I come from the drug world. And, and you know, there the problem is, man, if I, if I approve a drug too soon, 
people can be harmed. Uh, if I approve a drug too late, people will be harmed. You know, like where's the right balance? And it's it's almost impossible mm -hmm. to to find that right balance for, for particularly for a political agency. Mm -hmm. And and this is where I think part of the beauty of that I see happening in the new communities I see forming is today because the tools of the biotech world, many of which are used in things like drug development and basic research, are becoming more accessible. We also um, we, there's more personal responsibility, there's more personal autonomy coming into the system, and there's just, frankly, there's just more diversity. Mm -hmm. um, you know, that's, that's pretty cool, because yeah. the way the, the U.S., the FDA is a U.S. organization, uh, frankly, it doesn't really have, have the authority to operate very far outside of the U.S. borders. Yeah. Um, you know, what happens when, instead of, you know, pirating ships in Somalia, do they still do that? Um, you know, they start pirating genes and, you know, like, yeah. I, that's, that's a very different question, but one that I think, you know, could, could, is not outside the realm of possibility given the reduction in cost and the accessibility of these technologies. And coming back to intentions, I mean, so with humane genomics, you are trying to help solve cancer, the issue of cancer, and specifically focused on dogs to begin with. This is, so humane genomics is, is the evolution of, has gone through several evolutions. The, my, my, when I was working in biotech, I learned that the tools of, of the biotech industry were, were moving faster than the industry itself. And, and that's not surprising because synthetic biology is a digital technology. Digital technologies move exponentially. Business models and, and particularly regulated industries cannot. So that was kind of the genesis there. So, and because I worked with a company that made some really important drugs for cancer, I was always exposed to cancer. And cancer is actually, I just want to be clear, it's a really simple disease. Like, it's, it's really simple. It manifests in all different forms. Sure. Um, but it's a really simple disease because it's actually an infection of, your, of an individual's body with some of their own cells that, have, that are just misbehaving. Um, and that misbehaving is caused by a genetic corruption. And frankly, it doesn't matter where you got the corruption. Bad genes from your parents, uh, you live beside a nuclear plant, a cosmic ray, bad, you know, it does not matter. The fact is, it's a corrupted cell. Just look, if you've got enough computers on a network, the computers are going to corrupt. It's like an information infection. Yeah, it's, a, it's, a, it's basically a rogue cell that's causing an infection and uh, along the lines of a microbial infection. Except that with a microbe, we've got plenty of antibiotics. And, and the difference between a microbe and your own cell is so gigantic. In evolutionary terms, it's billions of years. It's pretty easy to find chemicals and other compounds to target the bacterium, but not hurt you. With a cancer cell, it's basically you. And the, gen, the, the, the evolutionary distance between the cancer cell and you is only a few years. Like, you know, at some point it diverged from the normal cells and went off on its own, but it's only, it, it's self-contained in you. So the whole, we know from sequencing that every cancer is unique and that, you know, that just means that every treatment's got to be unique, mm -hmm. which means that the whole pharmaceutical industry, which is totally geared to making mass market, one size fits all products, isn't going to work for cancer. It might work for your headache, but it's not going to work for cancer. So, so, and I think people are starting to come around to that. Today, personalized therapies are at the very forefront of, of cancer treatment. And I mean fully personalized to the individual. These are the new T-cell therapies. Mm -hmm. But 
10 years ago, I realized, well, okay, uh, you can build a whole new pharma industry around that for cancer because now you just have to start with the model, the business model of treating one person at a time. Now, T-cell therapies, pretty cool, but mm, you still have to go and get the T-cells out of the person, reprogram them, put them back into it in a clinical setting. I needed something a little more accessible for a startup, and so I chose the virus because there's a long history already of using viruses as therapies. Um, they're called virotherapies. You can essentially engineer or evolve or select viruses that just for whatever reason um, or you know have a preference for killing cancer cells. The they, normal cells, no big deal. They don't want them. The normal cells can shut them down, but they like giving cancer cells a cold. That is a pretty interesting therapy because you don't need a lot of virus and viruses kind of do a biological chain reaction and make more viruses. So you can start with a seed dose that only infects cancer cells, give it to a person. Theoretically, it should only kill cancer cells. That was just super appealing. And because I was coming from a synthetic biology world where you actually design and build genomes or code from the ground up, I realized viruses were going, were pretty accessible because viruses have really small genomes. And so I just started thinking, I started championing the idea of N of 1 medicine. I started championing the idea of viruses as a platform or virus-like particles because they don't, you know, we start with natural viruses, but you can pick and choose from anything in nature. There's no species barrier when you start working at code. And, and just using cancer as a model because, hey, no one's cured it yet. And we know we have to make personalized drugs. So it just made a lot of sense. So I founded a company, an open source company, called uh, the Pink Army Cooperative. It was the first co-op biotech to try and do this. And I went out and messaged, and, and I quickly ran into problems because I realized people don't understand cancer as an infection. Um, they don't understand viruses. They think they're all evil. They don't understand synthetic biology. They don't understand drug development. And they certainly don't understand the idea of, of a community-based company, a co-op. Yeah. You know, it, it, the whole thing, just there were just too many things to explain. But I had a great time explaining and, and loved talking to people about it. And, and that worked out pretty well. So it was a business failure, but an intellectual success. And so then humane genomics is just the evolution of that. Instead of doing a co-op, I just made a C-corp. <laughs> the entire United States is set up for creating C-corps. Um, uh, instead of making it formalized as an open source company, I just said it's an open source company like Linux. Red Hat, you know, like which is an open source software engineering company that is a C corp. Um, that just simplified the whole business world. Today, synthetic biology is much better understood. Today, personalized medicine and the whole idea of uh, going N of one is more understood. Um, you know, so really now, um, now most of the things that were frustrating and re required a lot of education are just coming into line. And now we just have to start cranking the wheel. So we're working with dogs because we can move to the clinic much easier than we can with humans. Like we can make, today we can design and build a virus in just a few weeks. We can personalize that virus with, with code by sequencing the, the actual dog that, we're, that we wanna work with. So we can build this pipeline taking 
biopsy information, molecular information from the dog's cancer, we can translate that into a custom design and make that virus very quickly. And then we can go and validate that virus on the dog's own cells in the lab at a reasonable price and then hand it off to the clinic to be used for treating that one dog. Um, all at a price point that's less than a single human treatment for a for a you know for a for a T cell therapy. And would, in fact, the, would the goal be to then extend that into uh, human trials as well? Yeah, well, here's the cool thing. Um, you work with dogs. Dogs get all basically the same cancers as us. They live in our homes. They, they're, they're kind of four-legged family members. Totally. But, you know, there's no placebo effect for the most part. Um, they, they take their drugs if the humans give it to them, um, you know, pretty reliably. Just feed it. Um, you know, so, so they're much easier... They're much more agreeable animals to clinical trials, and we're highly invested in giving them quality care. Mm -hmm. You know, honestly, most people don't care about mice. They're great research animals, but, you know, it's not like, oh, poor little mousey. You know, like, but, but we take care of our dogs like we take care of our children. So that works together really nicely to make dogs the best channel for leading the way to fully personalized medicine and de-risking it for humans. But from my point of view, at the low level, taking information about a cell, building a, a having a platform for designing a an agent to you know slow the growth or kill that cell, that to me is universal. Mm -hmm. Like I describe it to people as we're building a machine to kill any cancer cell. You know, but we'll start with dogs. Wow. So, I mean, I guess that's one of the reasons, or one of the things we were talking about before this that kind of dovetails off of this is, is longevity, right? So, I mean, cancer is, is one of many things that are uh, obviously uh, shortening our longevity um, and, and kind of ending human lives unnecessarily, perhaps. And you had some interesting feelings about longevity in general. Um, you're working on, you know, this cancer cures, but you were mentioning your relationship with Aubrey de Grey and perhaps having slightly different perspectives on longevity or life extension um, than someone like uh, Aubrey. So I'm curious to dig into that. Sure, I'm happy to unpack it. Um, so I've known Aubrey for a long time. I was telling you that I was, I was actually working at MIT growing the iGen program in 2006, and I saw Aubrey on the cover of a magazine. I'd heard his name before. I read the, I read the story, and I thought, wow, this guy is really, he's, 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 he's a salmon swimming upstream in the scientific waters. I love that. I love people that break the mold, think differently. So I called him up and said, hey, can I buy you a beer? And, and I flew to Cambridge, England, and we just geeked out. And he, his whole thing is longevity. My whole thing is building organisms. So it was actually pretty, pretty close. So, so we've, always, we've always been friends. We've always stayed close ever since that first meeting, and, and we intersect fairly often. The, and, and I want to be clear. Longevity is an important pursuit for humanity. I think, I think, it's, I think that living long, healthy lives is, is, is incredibly important. Um, the, the problem that we run into is we don't have um, essentially a guiding star for the engineering of humanity for, for immortality. Like, we just don't. We're already very long-lived. We, we live three times longer than we did, you know, perhaps a thousand years ago, maybe two thousand years ago, just because of you know, some of the improvements that we made in, in just food and, and, and waste management. Mm -hmm. um, 
So this is important, but, but we don't have the guiding star. If, if you said, if you gave me, you know, the ability to write human genomes from scratch today, which we're working on, we can talk about that, but, the, but if I had it today, I would not know how to engineer humans to live happier, longer lives. And the only way to really find out is to go and live a long, you know, happy, healthy life and see what's the limits. We've gone and sequenced people that are 100 years old or older. And that gives us some clues, but you know, none of these people were out, you know, playing tennis and racing cars. Like, you know, these are, you, you, you can't, you, come on, biologically we peak at 25. And, and that makes sense from an evolutionary standpoint. So, so I have, so I want to be clear. Longevity is, uh, is an incredibly important pursuit, even uh, as important as going to Mars or exploring the universe um, or, or doing other, any pioneering effort. But the, the challenge that I have with the idea of maintaining this body forever, uh, which is kind of what Aubrey puts it as, at his core, to me, just doesn't work because, uh, look, I have a. Uh, imagine we just maintained a, a car forever. It doesn't matter what year. Uh, I've got a 2014 Jetta that's in the shop now. If all I could ever do was maintain that 2014 Jetta forever, perfectly, well, I'm just going to keep falling further behind. You know, cars will electrify, they'll get started, they'll have, you know, they'll become autonomous, they'll have, you know, already it doesn't have many, I can't hook up my, I can't wirelessly hook up my, my phone, you know, and play music easily. It's just, it's just, you just fall further and further behind unless you can augment. So that's my, my problem with longevity. Just maintaining these bodies, even if we could just lock us in at this age, we're just going to fall further and further behind. That's just the body. That's not our brains. Yeah. So I think it's important to continually evolve and upgrade. And that's kind of what we're doing with children. So the, the, you know, the, everyone looks at, knows that naturally. You go and have kids, you start with a pristine cell, it's genetic, you know, hopefully it's genetically perfect. And you go and start with a new human being and you start, all the stuff that we built and create in the past, they just take for granted, they go and move beyond us. They stand on our shoulders. So I think we have to, that to me is my idea of longevity. Not, not you know, how do we go and have more children? Great, that's awesome. But also, how do we become children again without having to start from, and relearn everything from scratch? How do we accelerate that process? So it doesn't, it's not taking your entire consciousness and making it unbroken. It's taking what selective parts of our consciousness that are worth preserving and, and continuing that chain. And I think we're going to actually get there. Like, I can write, if I sat down and wrote a memoir, I could pretty much write most of the important thoughts that I've had, you know, in a, in a relatively short document. And, and all of my financial and digital and physical assets I can already transfer. So, so I can already, in some ways, create persistence. Mm -hmm. um, I can't necessarily guarantee that those ideas and my thinking are going to go on the same vector, but I don't know what my future vector is. Um, I can also amplify it because I can have a lot of kids. In fact, uh, I don't talk about this very often. This is kind of a, uh, this is something that I'm becoming a lot more comfortable with, but I love the idea of creating dynasties, not necessarily just with my own code, but I, now that I have children, I have two children, three and a half and, and, and eight months, I want 2,000 kids. 
I want to understand how to scale kids. Uh, the only reason I have for accumulating any type of wealth is to go and support more kids. And, and like that to me is real longevity. Mm -hmm. When like it, it kind of goes to the idea that I think they said this in, in, in Westworld, you, you're alive as long as someone remembers you, yeah. you know, like that to yes. me is like, which speaks to this idea of like, there's the biological and then there's also like that cultural meta layer, right? And like some of the information or like your pattern or echo gets encoded in that meta layer and it, it reverberates for some period of time. And how do you keep that alive for as long as possible? So how do you keep I, echoing so through time? I'm down with the longevity. I just want us to think bigger than just our bodies. I want us to, yeah. I want to see ways you know, for humanity just to persist and thrive. Yeah. And, and so, you know, the types of this translates into some pretty weird ideas. One of them is, one of them is just cloning. Like, I don't understand why people are afraid of cloning, like at all, or why there's any resistance. In fact, I think that's going to fall away fairly quickly because co cloning is just time displaced identical twins. Um, and, and it's code reuse. It actually makes a lot of sense from a programming perspective. You don't want to sit down and write code from scratch. It's going to be buggy, you know, but if you can reuse code and it's particularly if you can do tweaks and edits like you can do with CRISPR, you can continually refine the code until it just becomes better and better and better. So if I was making a clone of myself tomorrow, which I would happily do, I would also as like a backup or as like somebody to be alive in the world with you as well, like well, a co-conspirator to, to me it doesn't look if, if it's a not so much a backup it's not like i need spare parts yeah. uh, but i think just the idea of code reuse if i could raise a, a clone of myself i don't see any problem it'd just be another kid mm -hmm. it, it would probably you know it'd be a, a it would be a kid that not only got my love as a parent it would also know that it got a certain narcissistic yeah. kind of love <laughs> an interesting way of take, uh, testing the nature nurture divides well yeah well sure. I, so this is you know to me is pretty interesting and and so to me there's just i think cloning is going to emerge somewhere as as a really fascinating new offshoot of of human evolution mm. um and i think it's just kind of fun um you know personally i don't uh, let's face it it doesn't matter if we evolve our bodies anymore it's not like we're gonna turn into you know anything particularly interesting unless we start engineering but i think that evolving our minds and amplifying the ideas that we can communicate to other minds which is let's face it it's parenting it's education uh, at the lowest level it's advertising and propaganda you know it, i think that's far more interesting so i i think pretty much all the time babies 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 clones 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 and and kind of the future of human evolution and where that opens up uh, i have no idea yeah. but but you know today the the idea of reading code and writing code allows you to do what what craig venter called biological teleportation mm -hmm. you can literally you know if we had a dna synthesizer on mars and a dna sequencer here you could essentially transmit code and boot up organisms uh, on Mars pretty easily. Um, that's kind of cool. One day we could be able to do that with the human genome. That's kind of neat. In the interim, if we wanted to go, if I wanted to start a bloodline on Mars, I'd just have to send some frozen embryos, yeah. right? And, you know, of my kids or my clones and, and send them off to Mars and, and have them be born there. And, you know, so I could start a Martian bloodline. I think- I, Grown in the Martian human I, garden. <laughs> Grown in the Martian human garden. Well, well I, I love, Put this way, we, we for, I think it's actually really deeply encoded for us to have an attachment to where we're born. Sure. 
you know, and, and this gets codified in our freaking passports and borders, you know, which is kind of weird. But I, um, but I, I, I don't fully understand it being a digital nomad for, for some of my life. But, but I really think the idea that starting a bloodline on Mars, um, I think, is just a fascinating thing. Um, I, I know that those, those children born on Mars will look at Mars as in, in a way that no Earthling ever would, no Earthborn person. So anyway, science fiction explores all this stuff. Yeah. But, but we're, you know, the gap between science fiction and what we can do with our technology today is getting really, really hard. Well, speaking of that, one thing I really wanted to ask you was your opinion, since you've obviously had a pretty um, uh, personal relationship with IVF, you mentioned, yeah. and you've spoken about the fact that your children have, uh, you know, they were a uh, product of IVF. I call them lab-grown. Lab-grown, yeah. lab-grown kids. Yeah. And um, I was, yeah, are they vegan? No, I'm kidding. Um, but like, IVG. Uh, oh, yeah. in vitro gametogenesis. Yeah, exactly. No, that, so, so IVG is the game changer yeah, for IVF. Yeah. Exactly. So yes. yeah, what are your thoughts on IVG and where that takes oh, us? No, no, I've been tracking that for years. So yeah. Put it this way. We don't need, in general, IVG for men. Yeah. Like, I just want to be clear. One ejaculation for a man produces enough sperm to impregnate every woman in North America. Uh -huh. So there's no shortage of male gametes. The, the egg, the human egg is precious. It's precious. And, and right now, if, if a woman goes through IVF, it's a pretty... It's a pretty intense procedure. You're, you're pumped up on drugs to hyperstimulate your ovaries and produce all of these eggs, which are then surgically kind of collected at their, at, their, at their peak. Some of them are a little too young. Some of them are a little too old. They just go and get as many as they possibly can. They drop them in addition. If you get 28 or 30 of them, you are you're ecstatic. Some people only get five. Some, you know, some people only get 10. You know, but it is, um, these eggs are precious, 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 because to get those 10, 15, 20 eggs, you, you, you generally have to spend somewhere around $15,000 per cycle just for the, just to get the eggs. And then there's, and then there's genetic testing and screening and, uh, and, and you still have to do the implantation, et cetera, et cetera. So there's still a lot more downstream work. But if you can reduce that down to take a blood sample from a mom, and go and turn some of those blood cells back into stem cells, and then they'll turn those stem cells into eggs. That's a game changer because now it means, you know, literally from a blood draw, you can go and have millions and millions of eggs. So just from a, where does that take IVF? Well, fertility issues basically go away. It becomes a lot more affordable for people, but it also opens up the idea, even without genetic engineering, now you can start doing genetic selection. And I know that there's going to be a lot of people resistant to that. They think every embryo is precious. Well, that's not exactly true. Today, we're already at the point where you, you have embryos in a dish, we go and do genetic testing, and and many of those embryos after fertilization have, have gross genetic abnormalities. Mm -hmm. And so we discard them. We, we never give those a chance to be born. Chances are they'd miscarry naturally anyway. Some of them would be fine where we tend to be conservative. But if we find an error, we discard them. The idea of doing, um, the idea of having IVG and millions of eggs potentially is now we can, now we can select for features that we think are important. <coughs> Granted, IVG and millions of eggs 
without the ability to assay those eggs cheaply, uh, you know, is, is, is kind of a bottleneck. But right now the, the bottleneck is getting the eggs. It's looking like they've done it with mice. They've started to take some of the steps in human. I would, I would expect that within five years, um, we'll figure out IVG for humans and uh, very likely uh, advance to the first pregnancy. Does it also open up the possibility, we were talking about cloning earlier, in, in terms of like taking your own blood cells and, and creating a, a male and female sex cell and, and creating a, a oh, fertilized cell well, from that? It just gets weirder. Um, yeah. <laughs> is that a thing? Yeah. Like, <laughs> it seems, because like when I read about it, I was like, hold on, in theory, is that going to happen? That'll be interesting. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, it, it, you, a, a woman doesn't have a Y chromosome, so she yeah. wouldn't be able to make a man, but a man could make a man and a woman. Um, whether, you know, it would still take a little bit of genetic tweaking to make happen, but yeah. Mm. But, you know, the thing that I find, uh, you know, uh, the thing that I find really interesting about this is if we do learn how to build an interface between our biological brains, because it's a neat computer, and our electronic brains, um, and that doesn't necessarily mean figuring out how memory is encoded, because we can, we can put a tap on our nerves essentially and just take the same information that's going to the brain and shunt a lot of it off. Something like Elon Musk's Neuralace program. Yeah, well the Neuralace is, is, is a slightly higher resolution form of brain implant. I, I, I like, the, we were talking about this in the car on the way up, I like the idea of, of building a, a essentially a miniature cell phone that can fit in every cell. If you can make a cell phone, whether it's electronic or biologically sourced is irrelevant. Um, but if you can fit a, a cell phone inside of a virus, you can now put essentially a, a cell phone in every cell that the virus can infect. That's not unreasonable. Um, we already build fairly complex, you know, we build electronic components at that scale. Building a circuit at that scale is, is not impossible. It would be a simple circuit, but all it essentially has to do is monitor some of the activity some of the activity that's going on in a subset of cells. I think that there's a pretty high chance that we are going to build much more, they call them neuromodems essentially, um, you know, that very, very high bandwidth neuromodems. And if that's the case, we can start to, we can start to record a lot of the sensory information that we're getting and put it into a format that we could essentially mm, transmit it uh, and perhaps upload it into another into another into another brain. I, I love that idea because now we're no longer constrained by mm, these physical forms. Um, you know, if we want to go and spend a you know a, if we want to go spend some of our, our of our uh, if we want to upload our consciousness into a dolphin, uh, that'd be great. You know, um, you know, provided you know. I, let's just say I don't want to be eaten by a killer whale, but the. Um, <laughs> But the rest of dolphin life is pretty good. Uh, <laughs> yeah. There's so many, but just the whole idea of neural interfaces is really interesting. Uh, uh, in some of my talks, I, I, I've raised the idea of a uh, of a zoo without cages, just because if you can if you can build even a relatively simple neural interface, you could chip every every big animal, yeah. and they could just wander around in in our world around us you know, without, without giving us any problems. You could have a tiger sitting in the backyard and as long as it had something to eat, you know, it's not going to look at you. you <laughs> and, and some of these, some of these, you know, ideas of neural interfaces have, 
been explored in, in shows like Black Mirror, but they're yeah. all but they're always negative. Yeah. Well, like in, in theory, you're talking about a zoo for animals, but then you know the zoo as or society as zoo for people also well, comes up well, in something like Black Mirror. Right? Kind of a zoo for people. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. You know, but but, uh, but this is where if we just have higher bandwidth connections, uh, you, you know, you get the idea of working together in different clusters. You could probably have supermind clusters, and yeah. and and you know, it, it gets really fascinating. The thing is. You know, we do have a lot of headwind when it comes to manipulating biology versus manipulating other technologies. Um, and, and I don't think we really get to explore some of these ideas and possibilities uh, un, until we push through those boundaries. And I, I honestly don't know where those boundaries are rooted because it doesn't matter what your faith is, it doesn't matter what you do for a living, it doesn't matter your intelligence. There's a certain truth in life which is, if you're born, you're going to die. And the arc of life is pretty similar for everyone. It doesn't matter how wealthy you are. Um, yeah, there's a variability in it, um, you know, by five or ten years. But the, the life is essentially drawn up in quarters. In the first quarter, you're learning how to, you're born, you're learning how to move and walk, talk, eat, you know, excrete, reproduce. Um, you know, all of that is kind of in the first 20 years and, and you're starting to get a sense of who you are and what you want to do with, with your life and your brain power. In your second 20 years, hopefully you're applying that and you're getting good at it and you're starting your own family. And then the third 20 years, you know, your, your family is starting its own family and now hopefully you're getting to slow down and enjoy some of the comforts because trust me, I'm getting to that third quarter and, and you start to slow down. Your eyes start to fail, your hearing starts to go a little bit, you certainly don't have as much energy. And then in the last 20 years, it's basically all decline. You know, like you're just kind of winding up your affairs. And, and yeah, there's, there's anecdotal differences, but that's kind of life. So, so why that doesn't scare the hell out of people that, you know, want to continue on? Now, scare is probably the wrong word. Why doesn't wake up people and say, look, we can manipulate the entire world. We can, we can build dams and change the course of water flows. We can, we can see clouds. We can go to space. We can, we can go to the bottom of the ocean. Why can't we... What's wrong with thinking about how to, you know, tweak ourselves and our children to be a little different? Like, I, I understand that there may be some religious perspectives that are very restrictive, but, but you know, I, the, I'm sure there were people, well, there were people that, that didn't want the cotton mills and, 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 uh, or, or the, the, essentially the textile mills. There's people that didn't want computers. There are people that didn't want robotics because they were worried about their immediate existence. I, I think that most of our fears of technology are unfounded, that, uh, that technology in general doesn't always make life easier, but it, 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 it supports more life. It makes more life more interesting. It empowers more people. Um, and I think biotechnology will be the same thing. Do you think it's fair to say that our fears of technology are somewhat displaced fears of what we don't know about ourselves? Yeah. About ourselves? Yeah. And, and, and I think our, our entire, I think our brains and our bodies have, have basically, you know, we, we have evolved to be um, careful. Uh, you know, to, to go and we, we explore, but we explore carefully, step by step. Um, and and I, I think that's really important to be kind of bold in your exploration, but do it incrementally. Except that, you know, the incremental pace of things is, is accelerating. And this is where I think young people tend to scare old people today, because the things that you could do 
a generation ago in a given period of time, well, it just, you just couldn't get as much done. You can just run so much faster today that, you know, I can understand the fears of, of, of people that can't keep up with the pace of change or feel they're getting left behind or feel, uh, or they're being marginalized um, or that they just don't matter anymore because, you know, again, people have just moved on. Um, I, I, I appreciate that. I think probably the way we start, you know, getting beyond that and is, is by just being more inclusive, by recognizing that people have their opinions and their voice. Uh, hopefully, um, you know, I, I, and, and by sharing a little more. Uh, I think that a lot of these social dynamics are they get the differences get get reinforced and fortified because there's not a lot of cross pollination um, and, and so there's there's inequity and and boy you don't you see this directly on you know the streets of San Francisco you see you know this is an incredibly wealthy company or country and city that is and state that it, you know it, it's building the future and yet we have people that are just falling off, you know, the societal, you know, boat. Mm -hmm. um, like, so, so I don't know how to fix that except by being inclusive and open-minded. And hopefully, I, 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 I know that just to keep up with the pace of change, you can't always go and say, oh, I'm going to go and help the homeless. Mm -hmm. I think actually, if anything, that's, we have to create organizations that that's their mission and empower those organizations. But you know, that's tricky. Mm -hmm. It's always tricky to help, to have people help people. Is there a role for synthetic biology uh, in addiction management or mental health management? Oh man, uh, yeah, but but uh, when it comes to addiction management, I, I you know, and and the current um, you know problems with opioids, uh, remember these for the most part, you know, are prescription drugs. Um, they're also you know the yes, there are some synthetic opioids out there. It's a pretty simple molecule. Synthetic biology, if anything, might make it you know, even worse in the short term because you can make synthetic opioids, um, like biosynthetic. Um, they've already, they've already deciphered the biochemical pathways to make opiates, uh, which means that one day you might get a really interesting beer. Um, but, but so, but you know, those, these are painkillers. And, and I think it just, I think the opioid crisis is really related to some of the pain that we're seeing in society right now. Um, I'd love to, uh, I'd love to see that change, but it, it's really hard considering these are already regulated molecules. I, I think in general, we're going to have to get a lot more open-minded about drugs because the, we used to have an industry we could regulate. We used to have distribution channels we can regulate. And, and then of course we had this really, really stringent uh, enforcement of laws uh, uh, around use, distribution, dealing, manufacturing, et cetera, that I think are pretty draconian. I think having you know, people in jail for drugs is just stupid. Mm -hmm. um, that be, so liberalizing that I think can create more of a, more of a freedom because there are drugs out there that if you're feeling pain, yeah, it can eliminate. If you're depressed, it, we can get better at eliminate. If you need to be more creative, you can eliminate. If you need to, uh, as we get better at programming biology, you want to learn a new language, there'll probably be a drug. 
you know, we already have, I remember when Viagra came in, well, well, that used to be a problem. Now it's not, you know, like the, there's, I think taking the shackles off our ability to manipulate biology, uh, drugs, um, I think is just going to open up new vistas we can't even imagine yet. You know, we're coming up on our time because I know we have to get back to VW. I wanted to touch on uh, data ownership and the ideas around um, now that we have, you know, genomes being sequenced and companies that are trying to capture that data and also patents as well. I know there's been, there's, there's just been a lot happening in that space. Where, how do you view that, that, that evolution? So, so I've been an absolute champion of, of uh, uh, I'm a champion of open science. Uh, just everything should be open as much as possible. It should all be transparent. That's the beauty of blockchain technologies. It's, it's, it's an open ledger. Open books for companies, awesome. You'd be a lot less corporate fraud. Open books for government, really interesting there. Um, you know, I just think openness, sunlight is the best disinfectant. It's also just the way things grow. Uh, that's the way I look at it. Um, I've tried to do this in my own life. I've tried to do it with the companies I've supported. Uh, even with Autodesk, I got them to really keep the software they were developing open. Um, uh, today I'm taking that forward, and we didn't get much chance to talk about this, but I'm, I'm the catalyst for the Genome Project Write, which is the new global genome project. Most people don't know a lot about genetics, but they've usually heard of the Human Genome Project because it got so much attention for over a decade as, as, uh, as the scientific effort to read the human genome got going. It was also an incredible, it, that, that project created new technologies, it inspired a whole new generation of, of scientists, um, and today has really created a field that's changing diagnostics, it's changing, uh, it, it's really the bedrock of all biotech, including synthetic biology. Um, we've taken it a little further. We've said, hey, instead of reading a human genome, why don't we update it for today, which, and let's go and write a human genome. It's not that we have to write a human genome per se. Is there a reason for it? No, we're not going to be making synthetic babies today. But the, the human genome is big. It's complicated, but it's also useful. And, and, by, and people really attach significance to human. So just by saying, oh, I'm not going to synthesize the fruit fly, I'm going to synthesize a human, it becomes an inspiring grand challenge. Um, we've created an open foundation for that. Like it's open, it's transparent. We're trying to keep this as open and collaborative as possible. It's, it's bottom-up funding. It's learning how to create the societal tools and legal infrastructures and, and IP infrastructures and, and just everything that we're gonna need to kind of move into open engineering. That doesn't mean everything will be open in the future. I wanna be clear, if the, the other big influencer in my life besides DNA and synthetic biology has been the internet protocol. And the internet protocol is basically just how traffic moves on. It, it's the foundation of the internet. And of course the internet isn't all perfect. It's not all black or white or good or bad. It's not all open and academic or, or commercial. It's, it's just a foundation for everything. So I believe that open protocols for key things just need to be, you know, need to be, are, are incredibly empowering. And that's how we take society forward. I don't want standardization. I want diversity, but you have to have some things need to be standardized. Does that include, or does that standard uh, include the notion that each individual owns their own genome? Oh, look, 
If anyone tells you you don't know your genome, tell them to just go <laughs> in a nice way. Um, I usually say just just walk around them and keep going because that that particular attitude is stupid. Yeah. If you own anything, you own your genome. Mm -hmm. the, the, the thing that is shifting right now is to access that genome in the past was actually fairly hard. Mm -hmm. if you, um, it's still fairly hard. Yeah, you can get a 23andMe kit, but, but that's not reading your genome. That's not accessing it. That, that's, that's just lifting the covers and looking at a couple of things. And, and 23andMe is so restricted by what it can report back to you by the FDA, most of the t things they're going to tell you, it's entertainment. It's a toy. Yeah. The ancestry DNA is even worse. They tell you, oh, you're Eastern European, yeah. you know, like, uh, you're Asian. Uh, that's, that's stupid. And plus, they retain a right, a license to your DNA. So it's the only reason I haven't gotten mine sequenced is because I don't want to cede that well, ownership. But, but I've taken the other approach. I've donated my yeah. entire sequence, my complete okay. genome, to science. Okay. Because that's fine. Um, sure. Like I, I'm an early adopter and an evangelist. I'm I get a return of. It. If someone were to want to do follow your path and do that, how would they go about doing that? Personal genome project. Okay. The personal genome project has all the structures and capabilities to do that. But but here's the thing that's probably not going to be what wins. What's, what we're seeing now most recently is the evolution of a new type of genomics company built on the transparency of the blockchain. Um, starts off with, with you own your genome. The blockchain is, you know, verifies uh, your identity and that ownership, but it also, it also identifies that you consent to use it in certain ways. You can build a smart contract on it. Mm -hmm. So if, if you, right now your genome, it, it's running your body, it's making your kids, but it's not doing anything all that economic. It's not paying your bills. It's not paying your bills. But, but, but the new generation of company is coming along and saying, look, uh, it's also too complex for you to understand. You don't want to spend all your day doing this. Maybe you do, but, but, but um, even if you do, it's better in a community. So they're building communities and, and inviting people into those communities by saying, hey, we'll sequence your genome for free, but, um, but you know what? We're, we're only going to take a cut uh, of, of the economy of that. It's still yours. We're going to become kind of your asset manager. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and uh, just like you have a wealth manager, you know, if you if you have enough money to have it, you know, professionally taken care of, um, I think that's really fascinating. And so these types of companies are starting to appear. Um, they're all founded in kind of the same way. They'll all offer free genomes. You have to start looking at well, what else are you going to do for me? You know, like are are you going to protect me if I get you know if my employer learns that I have a medical condition and, and they fire me. Are you going to legally represent me? Kind of an electronic you know, genomic freedom foundation, right? Um, um, that's pretty interesting. Uh, what if the police uh, say that I was at a crime scene, but I wasn't? Are you going to defend me? Like, uh, you know, uh, what happens if, what happens if I'm, I have, I'm a celebrity and, and some, you know, I go to a restaurant, someone takes a fork and then sequences my genome with the cells I left on the fork and, and publishes a story in the National Enquirer. Will you you know, will you fight the National Enquirer? Like, how can you protect my genome? You know, these are these are some things. You know, will if 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 I will you help me create a smart contract so my genome can be used by pharma? But if a drug is made based on that information, can I get the drug for free? 
or can I get a percentage of sales? Like, you know, again, we have an opportunity now to create contracts with our genomic DNA. And, and it's interesting because in, individually, we're not worth that much. Some of us are. Some of us have superpowers. Some of us have amazing traits. But individually, we're not worth that much. We kind of fit in an average. Um, but we still have value. And that value, the value of our DNA extends through life and beyond. So the challenge today is how to enumerate that value. But if I take the genome out of it and I just take the you, I can estimate that value pretty clearly today because you're probably on Facebook. And Facebook has a value for you. Yep. I know what that value is. I can figure it out um, because it's pretty much public data. I just know this. The value of that data, which you can share as many times as you like, plus your genome, is even more. So the group that learns how to build community is going to become a very important group. Just like I watched Congress uh, and the and senators deal with Zuckerberg a few months ago, and and it was it was really interesting. Um, I think that there uh, I think that whoever runs the, the the next big successful genomic company is going to be even more powerful. That's why I don't necessarily think it should be run by a person. I think it should be run by a community. And that community is, you know, will, uh, uh, I think it's going to be really interesting. In some ways you could say, well, it's run by a machine. Um, but, you know, I, we still need people as kind of representatives of machines. Definitely. Well, it's great to have you as a pioneer in this space and, and, and pushing these things forward with the right intentions. Uh, it's great that you're, you know, trying to get these intentions seated in the world. Yeah, yeah. we really appreciate you having us over here. Uh, you are more than welcome. Thanks, Thanks Andrew. Thank you. Hello, fellow travelers. I'd just like to take a second to thank you for joining us. The mission of Catalyzing Coherence truly centers around building a community that's passionate about a more coherent future for humanity, and we'd love for you to get involved. If this content resonated with you, we invite you to help us build our community in a way that works best for you. First, please like this video and subscribe to our YouTube channel so you don't miss out on future content. We also have a Facebook group, and you can find us on Twitter at @catcoherence. Our primary community building tool is Patreon, where you can find us at patreon.com slash catcoherence. We'll be posting exclusive content there, so if you're feeling especially generous and would like to help us keep the lights on as we pursue our mission to bring you high-quality content concerning humanity's future, please consider supporting us on Patreon. We look forward to seeing you there. Until next time, keep exploring and stay curious.